0: And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for tuning in today. Hope you had a chance to listen to Susie Larson live. She's always awesome. And now we've got guy Talk or guys who talk for the next couple of hours. We'd love to hear what questions you might have for the power panel. And when I say power panel, they know where their power comes from. This is why they're so awesome. I've got a very distinguished panel today. I've got Pastor Tom Parrish, Trevor Rubenstein, and Dr. Randy Nelson. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank Good you. to be here. Thank you. Now, Randy, you're you're not the newcomer here at Faith Radio, but you're the newcomer to Guy Talk. I am. So yeah. uh, thank you for responding uh, to my request and coming on the show today. Looking forward to it. You are a professor here at uh, New Testament uh, University of Northwestern? Yeah, 26 years now. Who's counting? Come on. Yeah, <laughs> that's a long
1: time. And, right. and I'm an alumnus from Northwestern. I was here from 82 to 85 and had a great experience, and God called me
0: back. Yeah, that's awesome. And Trevor, nice to have you back. And Tom, always uh, a pleasure. So we've got time for your questions. Let me know what question do you have for the power panel today eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. You know, I'd love to talk about one of the parables from Scripture. I know Randy, you teach on parables, and and I know uh, Trevor, you uh, love parables as do you, Tom Parrish. So I know we were talking in the green room about parables in in uh, rabbinical literature. Uh, that's a very interesting topic to me, of which I know nothing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, parables and, and oral teaching okay. are still very yeah. prominent around the world. Now, they were before the written word came along, like the Gutenberg Press, when they finally could start printing. But almost everything was done orally. Storytelling was a huge part of that. And the thing that I learned about storytelling as a kid, as I was a storyteller from word one, day one, you remember stories. You don't remember, you know, and, and Randy, I know you, you teach New Testament. I'm, I'm sure most people couldn't go word for word through all the books of the Bible after you're done teaching them. But they remember the stories. They do. And it's a story that's so powerful. And when the story is used properly and when the story is repeated properly, as it is historically in many places, parables are incredible. And we don't use them or understand them enough in our 21st century.
1: Yeah, the parable of the good Samaritan. You, you can uh, visualize. Uh, you get images of the parable of the prodigal son, and and I think that's a nice thing about parables. Jesus was a great orator. Uh, uh, he used a, a dozen different literary forms, figures of speech, but the parables were his favorite. He spoke in parables more than any other literary form, and they created word pictures. Uh, you could see what he was saying in your mind's eye, and you're right; they were memorable for that reason, and they were repeated, uh, and. Uh, Usually with a parable, uh, and I'll be interested in, in hearing about more about rabbinic parables. But there are usually some kind of a, a twist, uh, a, a turn. So, for example, on the parable, the uh, good Samaritan, the Samaritan turns out to be the good guy in the parable. That's not the, what his audience was expecting. The, the Samaritan should have been the bad guy, should have been the foil in the parable. <laughs> and here Jesus twists it and makes him the good guy in the parable. Uh, but I, I think what's important, and I don't know uh, much about rabbinic parables, just a little bit. Uh, But Jesus' parables were often prefaced with this phrase, the kingdom of God is like." And so we note that the parables provided illustrations of God's kingdom. Uh, They weren't meant to be taken literally. Uh, They were figures of speech, uh, and they were very memorable, very colorful.
0: Thank you for that, Dr. Randy Nelson. Trevor, you got a few things to add to that? Yeah,
3: so there's there's some classic examples, I guess, of parables within uh, rabbinic Jewish teachings. There's, for example, one of an individual who finds himself on an island filled with diamonds and fills his pockets full of diamonds and ends up coming to a place where diamonds are the norm and really what he should have filled his pockets with was dirt. And so, you know, you'll hear these different stories that are talking about, again, uh, kind of spiritual ideas or concepts using um, physical things here today. But uh, but uh, uh, as uh, as you were stating earlier, Randy, a lot of the Jewish parables kind of create some form of fanciful um, illustration in order to relate to the kingdom of God or to greater spiritual parts. But uh, but when Jesus spoke of parables, he would use things that we really see and things that are true examples in which we live. So kind of a little bit of a different approach, um, really possibly even expounding on the idea of a lot of the things that we interact with here on earth are or intended to point us to greater spiritual truths.
2: It's interesting. When I was in Nepal and Bangladesh for a while, among the people out in the jungle, very few Bibles, very few translated in their language. They just didn't exist. However, the Bible teachers that were there often used the parables to teach. And so I'd be talking with uh, somebody in the village, uh, a Christian, and they would say, well, you know, I'm like the, the prodigal son. You know, and I'm thinking, how do you come up with that when you don't even have a Bible to read? <laughs> but the story connected. And I was amazed how often they got the right understanding of the story, which blew me away because they were telling me things that I haven't even heard out of Christians didn't
3: they? They were in my own church. But it was amazing. And so I see they work. Professor Andy so is that is that possible that even like what Paul is referring to when he talks about that uh, that there's something within creation that should give us an understanding of who God is in Romans chapter 1 that he's maybe kind of uh, playing off of this idea that the things of the world do point to a greater spiritual reality <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, and I don't know how much you want to talk about natural theology, but I, I do think that there is—God leaves his fingerprints in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and, and Romans 1, I think, uh, points to that. I, I think sometimes the the revelation in nature is a little bit ambiguous. So, for example, can you prove the Trinity from nature? Uh You know, uh, some things are triune. I don't know that that proves that God is a triune God. So there are things that we rely upon, special revelation. But I I do think that uh, Jesus appealed to nature to illustrate spiritual truths. I think the best definition I heard of a a parable, I think I got this from Robert Stein, was a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I think that's just a, a nice way to think about parables. Don't don't literalize the parables. The parables aren't about a guy who gets waylaid on his way from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's really not literally about that. Uh, but it's illustrating what it means to be a member of God's kingdom. And a member of God's kingdom is somebody who shows compassion to people who are in need. And not only shows com- or, or feels compassion, but demonstrates that uh, compassion uh, in a very generous
0: and gracious way as we see the uh, Samaritan doing. Nicely done, Randy. Thank you so much. 877 933 2484 is the number to text your question over. 877 933 2484. All right, here's my first question. And Trevor, I hate to say it, but I'm looking your direction.
3: Where's Matt when I need him?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, he's going to come back, he said. How do Jews who do not accept Christ deal with sin? Yeah. To my understanding, they no longer conduct sacrifices.
3: Correct. And obviously, uh, the Lord stated very clearly that sacrifices could only be done in the location in which he appointed. And uh, there is uh, that's actually where a very famous mosque is located at the moment. And so there's no way that the Jewish community could continue to do that. Or even after 70 AD, could they because Rome came and decimated the temple at that point in time as Jesus prophesied. Um, But so what happens as a result, and it's kind of interesting, is um, Judaism today is more so a response to the situation. Because the way that you see the Torah written and the instructions given is it is giving the people of Israel instructions as to how to live a religious system at a specific location of the world given a certain circumstances where they are running their own country and they have a, a certain a judicial group of people that are able to institute laws and regulations. And once that's all gone and they find themselves in diaspora, they really had to – start to adapt another faith. This this faith adapted really beginning probably with the Pharisees, maybe even earlier some people think with the Babylonian captivity, but we see it clearly within the time of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees really were reaching out to Jewish people that were in diaspora, and so within diaspora, you couldn't come to the Jerusalem for the three times a year during the pilgrimage feasts in which they were instructed. Um, and there were some other limitations. So they started developing a form of Judaism that was able to be practiced without a country, without a temple. And so the way that they look at things like sacrifices is they look to sections like Psalm chapter 51— where David says uh, to in in his uh, crying out to the Lord that sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a broken heart. And so they say, well, repentance now substitutes for sacrifice. There's a section where they uh, mistranslate, I believe, where it's, uh, it states the bowls of my lips. And so they say that this is confession for sins. They They believe that giving alms. It makes atonement uh, and these type of things. And so, so it's kind of taking some of the later texts, which sometimes are meant to be poetic or maybe even prophetic, and, uh, and stating that that's the situation, so God did not need sacrifice. And I I don't want to take too much time with this, but I think this is an interesting note. So um, today a common rabbinical teaching is that the reason that God instituted sacrifices in the first place was actually just to appease pagan, uh, worship and to have people adapt to, you used to worship to your gods, but now you worship to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're going to appease this tradition and allow you to do this type of sacrifice. So they even dismiss, um, often that a sacrificial atonement um, was ever necessary in, in modern uh, Jewish teachings. Um, this is unfortunately not true according to Scripture, but it's uh, it's kind of the, what they had to do to develop a religious system without a temple worship, mm-hmm. without accepting Jesus.
2: So good. Thank I can you. add to, to Trevor. Please. I don't know how much time we have. I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> uh, we have two hours. <laughs> a week ago today, I did a funeral for my nephew. He was 56, died of esophageal cancer. He lived a horrid life of drugs and other things. But 12 years ago, I met Jesus, changed his life completely, and he became a different person. Big turnout for the funeral, they asked me to do the actual service, so I got to preach. There were quite a few Jewish couples that came, which I thought was interesting, and I don't know how I knew them, but they did. Anyway, the bottom line is, um, I told them I respect the other religions here, but Tony was a Christian, we're going to talk about Jesus. And I talked about how John 14, if Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will take you to come and be with me. And I, as a pastor, have seen a lot of people on their deathbed tell me Jesus is here or reach out for him at the last moment. So I shared some stories afterward. The Jewish people that were there literally boxed me in a corner. and wouldn't let me leave and said, we've never heard anything like this. We want to know more about this. Where can we find out more? We have never, we don't know that kind of peace. And I was astounded because one of the women hugged me for five minutes and said, I, I'm overwhelmed by what I've just heard. So I know what you're saying. But the hunger is there for Jesus, and they don't know it.
3: This is kind of a new thing that's been occurring in the Jewish community, Tom. And so uh, the first thing I thought of when they asked you, how can I learn more? I was thinking, could you give them my number? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, but as as we've talked about here, there's actually record numbers of Jewish people coming to faith there's right God. now. And this is what all the polls are showing. And, and uh, to to such an extent, Tom, to where I regularly have Jewish people now contacting me, asking me questions about Jesus.
2: Well, I give them my book free. And so we're on a, a start there. But if you give them your
0: business card, I'll make sure they get it too. I'll give you a bunch of them. <laughs> I would love it. All right. We'll take a little break. We come back. Lots of time for your question. Let me know what you have for the power panel today. Dr. Randy Nelson is here. Trevor Rubenstein is here. And Tom Parrish is sitting to my left. We're gathered around the studio table, microphones in front of us. We are ready to do our very best to answer whatever question you have. Let me know. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word APP to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. Welcome to Guide Talk, or Guys Who Talk. I've got a tremendous power panel today. Dr. Randy Nelson, Trevor Rubenstein, and Tom Parrish. Let me know what questions you have, 877 933 Two four eight four again eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. So we were talking during the break uh, about secular Jews and when it comes to the Jewish faith, is it more about practice or more about faith, Trevor?
3: Oh yeah that's the uh, that's million question. dollar question yeah. isn't yeah. it Um so it depends on the form of Judaism okay. Um his, historically what develops so this happens in the uh, I believe early 1800s in uh, Germany uh, so there really was only one form of Ju- of Judaism practiced right and and it's uh, it's called it's called uh, orthodox today there's different elements of orthodoxy of course um but in Germany around the time where the age of enlightenment was kind of uh Exploding and uh, and theologically, people were being taught to question everything. A lot of Jewish people, um, being very well educated, were kind of falling into this area. And so, what occurred was um, was there there was a recognition that the Jewish community was losing population. Um, because people were no longer practicing their faith. And, and something unique about the Jewish people is because they didn't have a country for so long, they, the primary link to their national identity became this religious system. So somebody, for example, from Sweden recognizes they're Swedish because of their ancestry, but because, they're, because there's a country still of Sweden, but when Israel was gone for so many years— um, it, what happened was is this identity really was more tied up with the religious system than it was with a national background and so uh, and so as as in Germany particularly but uh, kind of throughout uh, a lot of Western Europe, as Jewish people were becoming more secular, being educated in a more secular education system, and there was a concern of losing them, they created a form of Judaism that they call Reform judaism reformed judaism the it was it was really made in order to be able to have people. Um, recognize that they're Jewish um, by their ancestry and without determining – their belief is a is a major factor. So it kind of took a position of we don't care what your beliefs are. We just want you to recognize that you're Jewish. So some of the early practices, interesting, in Reformed Judaism contained like Sunday worship and people wouldn't wear yarmulkes. It was, it was very, very much like uh, um, kind of a- acclimating to the society around them. and uh, And then there was a form of Judaism that developed in response to that that said, well, we're not so concerned about what they believe, but they need to maintain their practice. Um, so this is what conservative Judaism is, because conservative Judaism really takes the position of you conserve the traditions of Judaism. Um, Orthodox is more concerned about both belief and practice, and that, and there's other forms of Judaism within. But this is generally how it's kind of divided um, and uh, and set up. But uh, there's always a question that comes up regarding orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. Um and uh and within in the way that the Jewish people look at Christian faith is they say, well, you you guys are just focused on belief, but we're we're more focused on action. Um and you, you even see that uh you know that argument kind of made throughout the scriptures. But but something fascinating, I love this depiction. Um it was always about belief and faith. Uh when you go back to the to the Sabbath, for example, the, the very context of the Sabbath has to do with trusting that God will provide for you on that day. So it was always faith. It wasn't about the works that they would do. It actually even stated you can't do work on this date. And even during the holiest day for the Jewish people, which is Yom Kippur, um, the the instructions in Leviticus chapter 16 go through great detail of everything the high priest had to do. The high priest had to do all of these different sacrifices for himself and for the people of Israel. And then you look at the instructions for the people— And it says in Leviticus chapter 23, and it says five times in six verses regarding Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it states, do no work, do no work. Do no work. This shall be a Sabbath, which means do no work. And this shall be a Sabbath for you again, which means do no work. So clearly the way that atonement was even understood within the Jewish community, even this temporarily annual atonement, not like the atonement that we get through Jesus, which is eternal, but I think a picture or image of which the high priest, a holy man has to do all the work interceding for you and you can do nothing to earn it. Mm. So really even this idea of orthodoxy, Doxy of our belief being prominent is actually very clear within the Torah itself.
0: Nicely to done, Trevor. Thank you for that. You know, I think you've opened a door. But I don't mean, to. I didn't mean to. Well, you did. Sorry.
2: Because, <laughs> and Randy, you probably see this with all the uh, students you've worked with. We see this in Christianity as well. You have those that it's the focus is faith in Jesus, but so many people, it's the focus on their tradition their practices, their practices, how they've done this. And now we've got a drop off in Christianity of an awful lot of people because even the practices don't seem to be holding them. And I keep saying, you know, this is when the Lord's got to move, you know, in a a very dramatic way to get people to begin to wake up because they're not waking up to what's important anymore. Um, But it's a universal problem. I see it in local church. Many pastors see it. And unfortunately, I even see it among a lot of pastors.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, there's a distinction I like to make, not only between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, uh, but uh, orthopathy, uh, right passion. Uh, and I, I think that's really important. Uh, what are we passionate about? And we can be really passionate about a football team and get all excited and cheer but can we have that same passion for the Lord? Uh, And I think that the Lord wants our heart. He doesn't want just the, and I think this was the problem with the the Pharisees, I think, and Jesus uh, nailed this when he uh, accused them of ritualism, uh, kind of this mechanical worship of God. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Uh, God wants our hearts. And I think if he has our hearts, then I think the beliefs and the actions are going to follow that. But it starts with our hearts.
0: Orthopathy, I think, is where it begins. All right. Here's a question Uh, we got on the topic of parables early on. And we have a question now about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, Is it, are we, I know it, it says parables are stories and we're not to take them literally. What do you guys think about how often time the parable of Lazarus and the rich man is taken literally to, is it to take, to teach the doctrine of hell? Is that what that is for? that parable?
3: I'm excited to hear this answer.
0: <laughs> uh, go, yeah, go ahead, Randy. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, great, thanks.
1: Okay, so uh, first of all, there's some debate on whether or not it's a parable. Uh, if, if it is a parable, it's only a parable where Jesus names somebody, so True. Lazarus is used in that. So there's some debate on whether or not it's a parable. If it is a parable, and I think that it is, then I'm very cautious about literalizing parts of the parable. Uh, it, it's kind of like the, this, the the parable of the, the four types of soil. I don't think this is teaching us how to be good farmers. A farmer doesn't go and just randomly scatter seed. We're not to emulate that. So I think we need to be careful not to literalize the parable Uh, and especially when we talk about uh, the afterlife. What's the afterlife going to be like in the separation of heaven and hell? Because if we literalize that parable uh, all rich people are going to go to hell and suffer and all poor people are going to go to heaven and be at Abraham's bosom. And so again I I want to be careful not to uh, base too much of my theology on a literal interpretation of that parable
2: mm-hmm. yeah. you know it's interesting because i've had a number of people over the years come to me for counseling and i cannot tell you the number of women and men who have said to me you know my mother came to me in a dream and she told me you know that what i'm doing here is wrong or that we've got this wrong or whatever else now in my early years i was very theologically astute and stupid and i didn't know how to answer very well But I learned how to do that from the standpoint I would say to that person, okay, uh, you tell me you believe in Jesus. Oh, yes. Where does Jesus say that that works? Can you show me in scripture? And they'll stumble around and say, well, no. I take them to that parable. You know, they cannot cross over. And what you're hearing in your dream is not your mother. Ultimately, it's what we get, it's not your father. But so much of this is going on today in the occult, it is going on in witchcraft, it is going on uh, around the country. And we have to have Christians have to come up with a better answer than what we've had because so many Christians are saying, "Well, I my brother talked to me in a dream." No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus said it doesn't. Be very careful with that.
1: Yeah, I agree. And uh, it, there are so many warnings in Scripture about uh, trying to communicate with the dead. Uh, and I'm I'm really torn because there's a. Uh, pastoral side of me that wants to comfort people that are grieving and so i i get yeah. that on the other hand i think you're right i think there's a biblical mandate against contact with the dead so i think
0: we have to take those warnings very seriously yeah. all right we'll be back with lots more guide talk let me know what questions you have 877-933-2484 of randy trevor tom that's the power panel today and they know where their power comes from we'll be right back To the part of the week I particularly like—I like every day—but Thursday is a lot of fun because it's guy talk. Or guys who talk—we're always open to answering your question. Maybe you've wanted to do it over the last couple of months, and you didn't feel like you had the right wording. Just send over what's on your on your head and what's what's in your in your um, whatever whatever you want to ask. Just go ahead 877-933-2484. You don't have to have it perfect. Just send it over. All right, gentlemen, uh, uh, Paul in Romans 7 contrasts bringing forth fruit unto God with bringing forth fruit unto death. Might this be the same fruit, but with two different motives? There's that dead silence I hate (laughs) in radio. (laughs)
1: So uh, fruit, uh, uh, the Greek word is karpos, and uh, usually when it's used by Paul or Jesus, they're not talking about uh, pomegranates or oranges or apples, Uh right? So we can all agree that it's a metaphor. The question is, what's it a metaphor for? Uh, Fruit can be a positive metaphor, it can be a negative uh, metaphor, there's good fruit, there's bad fruit, and it usually deals with virtues and vice. Uh, so what kind of fruit are you bearing in your life? Uh, When John the Baptist is baptizing people and they begin to question him, he tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the kind of fruit that he talks about is the kind of fruit that is... Virtuous. It's it's generous fruit. Uh, The soldiers are not to complain about their wages. They're not to exploit people. Uh, The tax collectors are not supposed to collect more taxes than they're they're supposed to. They're not to uh, intimidate people. Uh, There's a a generosity. There's a a mercy. Uh, There's a response that happens as a result of conversion. That's the kind of fruit that we're supposed to bear. Uh, The the fruit of the spirit. Uh, We've got nine virtues listed there. I don't think it's an, an exhaustive list, but It's a representative list of the kind of virtues we should bear, but they're also uh, fruit of the flesh that we can bear. Uh, And uh, you're known by your fruit. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. Uh, Jesus would say that you're known by your fruit. Uh, What kind of fruit are you bearing in your life? I talk about this with my students all the time, uh, classes on uh, discipleship. Uh, Take a look at your life. Uh, Do some self-assessment. What kind of fruit are you bearing, and what does that reveal about the condition of your
0: heart? Well done. Thank you, Randy. Yeah, everything that emerges
2: from us after we know Jesus or after we've been experienced that saving moment should be thankfulness. And so what comes out of thankfulness? A lot of fruit. When I'm thankful, I don't spend all the money on myself. When I'm thankful, I give people other, I give people time. And I think as Christians, we need to understand that. We we don't need to be worried about am I following the commandments? Because that's why Jesus died, because we can't follow them perfectly. But we do, it, we do it now out of thankfulness, so we do obey the commandments, and we try to do those things, but it's not out of guilt, it's out of thankfulness, and we don't get enough of
0: that. I'd be real curious as to what the criteria is for fruit. So, w- when fruit happens, we can point and go, ah, there's fruit. Uh, What's the criteria?
3: Fruit is uh, actually a reproductive component to the plant also, so, uh, so what is good will produce good things, and what is bad will produce bad things, and so... Uh, and so in, in understanding that parable, and one of the most prominent, I think, and clear examples that we see of this is really, uh, for example, sharing faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, because as a, as a direct result for what he did in our lives, we share that with others, and God willing, then it happens in others' lives also. But, uh, but when we do destructive, sinful things, you'll notice this about sin, is sin very rarely only affects you. Um, And so, again, we we see that manifest and spread in different ways. Reproduction is a major component to fruit, clearly. Mm -hmm.
1: I I like that. I I think that's really good. Uh, Take a look at the people around you. What kind of an impact are you having on them? Uh, I I, I, I like that. It's not just uh, the personal virtue that you're bearing in your life, but are you bringing out the best in other people? Are
0: you bringing out the worst in other people? So if I shovel my neighbor's walk, is that fruit? Or is it only fruit if I tell my neighbor about Jesus after shoveling his walk. See,
1: for Jesus, it's, it's not just the action. It's the motive behind the action. So the Pharisees often did the, the right thing. Uh, they fasted twice a week. The mm. Mosaic law requires fasting once a year. Uh, they tithed the tenth of everything, including their spices, uh, and uh, that wasn't required by the Mosaic law. So in a lot of ways, they went above and beyond the Mosaic law, but they did it for self-aggrandizement. Mm. Uh, and to Jesus, that amounted to nothing. So Jesus wants us to do the right thing, but he wants us to do it for the right reason.
2: Actually, there are three steps, and you just named them, Bill. This will be a good sermon now. You've, you've got, you, you shovel the sidewalk because you have the opportunity, you can do it. You do it um, just because, and your neighbor is thankful for it. But your motivation better be right for doing it, not just to get something from them, but you're doing it for Jesus' sake. And third, if the opportunity presents itself, that divine moment, you talk to them about Jesus. Yep.
1: Yeah, let your light shine uh, so that men can see that and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's not about self-glorification. Uh, it's about glorifying God. Right, Motive mm-hmm. is everything.
0: Mm-hmm. So I've got uh, two Lutherans and a, a Jewish person <laughs> here in studio. Randy, tell us about your uh, Lutheran upbringing.
1: So, uh, my dad was full-blooded Norwegian. Uh, He uh, broke the bloodline when he married my mother, who was half Norwegian, half Swede, and they would argue about what was the better better half. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, yeah, I grew up in the um, uh, Lutheran church. Uh, When I get done with... uh, uh, confirmation. I figured I had graduated from church. Stop going. Uh, my sister started going to an independent church. I went there. The pastor was an evangelist. Came to faith in Christ at age 22, and I've been to a variety of evangelical denominations, evangelical free uh, Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, most recently, I'm going to a Baptist church. So. Evangelicals tend to be trans-denominational. If they go to a new town, uh, the name on the front of the church doesn't matter. If they are preaching the word, praising Jesus, and they have really good food, I mean fellowship, uh,
0: (laughs) sign us up. Amen. (laughs) All right, which kind of leads me to my next question. Uh, A listener was saying that my grandson uh, grew up in an evangelical church and now has decided to uh, visit another denomination and become part of that. And she's concerned about his salvation
3: your thoughts well there's uh there's an open door there it, it really depends on the denomination of course yeah, mm-hmm. uh um, certain groups might not preach the gospel, certain groups might not believe in Jesus' divinity. you know it, de- it depends on, I guess what they're coming to. But as if it's an organization that believes in the death, burial resurrection of Jesus, that he alone is the way that we are saved, that if we put our faith and trust in him, uh, that He is God, I mean the, the core elements of the faith universally, is what saves us, not necessarily a denomination that we're part of. Nicely done, Trevor.
2: And a lot of it is learning how to ask your grandkids, because I've got a slew of them, appropriate questions. In other words, when you sit down with them, instead of saying, well, why are you going to that church? You grew up Lutheran or you grew up Baptist. You should be going there. I'm sure they don't preach about Jesus the way we do. Instead, like with grandkids, you start out by asking them, tell me, what are you learning about Jesus? How are you becoming more like Jesus as a result? You know, how, is the, how are the scriptures getting into your heart on a more regular basis through your church? If I hear from my grandkids that that's happening, then I feel pretty good about it. If I don't hear that that's happening, then I have concerns. And then we try to address those concerns.
0: All right, here's another question. I was reading Isaiah 61 this morning, which talks a lot about righteousness. When I read that, it didn't feel... Positive. It felt arrogant. Can you explain righteousness to me from a biblical standpoint? Righteousness from a biblical standpoint. I repeat stuff just to stall, just to. <laughs>
2: well, I'm, give I'm ready the to jump in, but go ahead, guys. I mean, we got a New Testament prof here. We don't want to mess around.
0: Yeah, it we was
1: well, is Isaiah 61. So I'm looking to the uh, the Jewish guy. <laughs>
3: there you go. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm intimidated by the present. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, of course, uh, ri- God, the righteousness that the Lord looks for is imputed. It, it's given from the yes. Lord. Um, there, I think that there's an important concept really theologically uh, that, uh, that we can always look towards to understand if we're on the right track, and that's who's receiving the glory. In, in a situation to where I think that I'm establishing my own righteousness, and this is actually stated, for example, in Romans chapter 10. Um, in a situation to where I, I feel like I'm establishing my own righteousness, I have not submitted to the righteousness of the Lord. And this was the problem that that, uh, that Paul was writing about the people of Israel is that they're trying to become righteous themselves as opposed to depending on the righteousness of God. And even if you think about it conceptually, uh, if if eternity is achieved through me doing so many good things that I earn it, who would receive the glory? And of course, that would be the Lord. But instead, if God is so good and he does so much that through his death, through his resurrection, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, that he imparts his righteousness into me, then he's the one that's receiving of the glory of anything good that comes out of me. I, I often uh, personally view myself as uh, really a, I'm, I'm a sinner who is saved by the grace of God Amen. And uh, and, and recognize that the only good thing in me is the Lord. Uh, there, there's nothing nothing good in my flesh and who I am without the Lord. I, I very clearly came to faith uh, later in life, and I very clearly know who I am without Jesus, and it's not good. I had an older woman in church one Sunday, and I've learned to listen to the
2: little old women and the little old men, because they have a lot of wisdom. She said, when, you, when you're talking about the Lord, or you're talking about Christianity, or you're talking about your salvation, if you start out with me or I, or any of the pronouns about yourself You're already off base You should start it with Jesus And what he's done for me What he's saying what he, How he has risen from the dead for my sake And Trevor it's what you're saying If we look to ourself in righteousness Whether it's Isaiah 61 or it's here We're in trouble Because I don't have enough of it But if we start with Jesus And he has imputed or given me his righteousness That's a different matter altogether And that's what I cling to yeah,
3: and, and even uh prophetically possibly some of the some of the uh, scriptures that we read in sections in the latter sections of Isaiah and other parts in like Ezekiel, the latter sections of Ezekiel latter sections of Jeremiah, um possibly are even referring to a righteousness in which the people are able to achieve only because they have uh, because they have received the forgiveness of the Lord, because they have even at the, some point in time received resurrected bodies, um, in which case uh, they're no longer um, subject to the same sin nature and those type of things that were occurring. So so often when you see a, uh, a, a standard of righteousness that seems unachievable, it's because it is in our flesh. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that one of the reasons that the Lord... Um, that the Lord uh, has us actually perish from this body it is because this body is not it is not able to achieve what the Lord expects from us. So we need to have resurrected, purified forms at some point in time. Um, and so sometimes those prophecies we have to be careful of as to what, what's the time frame of what's, when this is occurring and things of that nature. Yeah,
0: I'm all for that body. You just... just... Just describe. That sounds
3: good. More and more every day, huh?
0: Yeah, amen to that. We'll take a little break. We'll come back looking for your question. I know you have one. 877-933-2484. Randy, Trevor, and Tom, we're ready to take your questions. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to the show. It is time for God Talk, and we love this time when we can enjoy the fellowship and friendship, and we can have lively debates on questions that come in. So we would love to hear from you, 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Dr. Randy Nelson, Trevor Rubenstein, and Tom Parrish. All right, in Colossians chapter 1, it does uh, talk about in verse 5, let's see, faith and love are grounded in the hope stored up for them in heaven. I'm sort of paraphrasing right now. But let's talk about this hope. It's stored up in heaven. What does that mean? This hope is not subjective, is it? Who wants to go first, Randy? Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Boy, that was <laughs> uh,
1: real confident. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I, I think that uh, sometimes, and I, and I, I wrestle with anxiety, and uh, one of the things that happens with anxiety is you tend to magnify or catastrophize uh, things that you anticipate that, that are going to happen. At the same time you underestimate your ability to deal with it. And so whatever this thing you're imagining, that uh, you're perceiving, is going to level you. And I think what's helped me is this idea that there is a hope stored up in heaven. There's a hope that transcends me, that I can embrace, that is beyond me. Uh, and the hope is rooted in Christ. Uh, those verses that tell a person not to worry, not to be anxious, I, those are biblical. And, and uh, But if you have... Um, clinical anxiety. It's not as simple as just turning your brain off. Uh, There are times when your brain becomes your foe rather than your friend, and you have to really wrestle with it. And I think the verses that help me more are the verses that promise God's, God's presence and God's Peace in the midst of difficulties. So it's not that the Lord's going to take the difficulties away, but the Lord is going to be with me in the midst of those difficulties. And even if I don't feel resilient, uh, the God that God is going to be my, re, He's going to provide me with that resilience. Uh, he's going to give me the hope in the midst of the despair. Uh, and the feelings of hopelessness. And so I, I do like this idea of our hope being stored in heaven. It's eternal. It's unchanging. Uh, and we can lean into it, uh, even if we don't have the hope within ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Randy, you've talked about anxiety, your anxiety before, and I've really appreciated your vulnerability. And a lot of people, the last time you did mention it, uh, showed up on the text line and said that they were appreciative of it because there's so much of it right now. And I know you've talked about yours from a clinical standpoint, but... When you take the promises of scripture and then you try to uh, marry them with anxiety, it sometimes even it's hard to make sense of, hard to say, yeah, I've got this. Because you don't sometimes. Your brain is your foe.
1: It, it is the the brain is so complex. You know, you, you, I, I like to study astronomy, and the universe is just incredible—the mm-hmm. size of it, the the millions and trillions of stars and planets, and how big the universe is and stuff. Uh, and and we're still trying to figure a lot of that out. Uh, and the same thing is true with the brain. The brain is so complex, and and we take it so for granted. And for the most part, it is our our friend, uh, and uh, it works with us rather than against us. Uh, but there are times, and I. I I would imagine this goes back to the fall. Uh, part of it is genetics. We inherit things from our parents and I find that there are pathways in my mind that are destructive. Um, they're, they're not constructive, uh, and I can feel, and, and I compare it to an alcoholic driving by a bar or liquor store where they, they, they feel the steering wheel pulling them towards uh, the bar or the liquor store. In my mind, there's a pathway, and it's usually, it starts with the what-if things. Well, what if this happened, or what if that happened? And I find when I go down that road, I get this feeling of dread, uh, and I've got this cloud that hangs over my head that I really have a hard time working through, so I find that I have to to pull the stream back and I have to ask God to help me develop more constructive pathways in my mind pathways that trust in him pathways that lean into his strength and his peace and then I'm able to navigate that they say you can never overcome uh, anxiety if you have clinical anxiety you can learn to manage it uh, but you're never going to get rid of it
0: that's so so helpful thank you for sharing that it really is good gentlemen I don't know if you wanted to add anything to this hope that's stored up in heaven and the hope that is not subjective, but it's objective—the thing that's hoped for—is eternal life.
3: Yeah, and I think Randy really touched on this, but uh, but we have an eternal promise versus what we have temporally, and and the Scripture so often focuses on that. Is to why put our attention to the things that will fade, things that will be destroyed? I mean, even we talked about our own bodies at one point in time, and and of course, it's good to you know have have. Good health practices and things of that nature, but uh, but the primary focus needs to be eternal. Be I, I had this conversation with a relative of mine, who's a very successful individual, and uh, went through a lot of schooling, you know, multiple master's degrees and doctorate. And I and I asked him why he went to school, and he said, "Well, to prepare me for my future." And I said. Well, if you're willing to spend this much time in school to prepare you for the next 50, 60 years, then how much time should you spend preparing yourself for eternity? Mm-hmm. And so often that eternal focus is so helpful because the things of this world don't go perfectly. But the Lord, when he establishes his kingdom finally, it's, it's going to be beyond our even uh, possible expectations for how good things could be. And that's what, that's what he's going to provide for us.
2: True story. Uh, I was was not taught how to read in school. It was between fourth and fifth grade year, and they, they couldn't get across to me by phonics or anything else. I taught myself to read with comic books. I bought a lot of comic books, and the pictures helped me translate the words. And now here I am, I'm a writer and a teacher and all this kind of stuff. The Lord was good and helped me overcome that. What I found is in Christianity— When we're dealing with, and I understand anxiety, I've dealt with a lot of it, I've seen it, or whatever those things are, we don't have enough reminders in our life. The devil reminds us all the time how stupid we are. But I'm very big on, I I would give people, we had a medical clinic in my church for a long time. And I would have doctors actually advise patients to come and talk to me. When it comes to those kind of things, I would actually make it like a, a plaque for them. I'd do it on photo that and that put it on there. But I would say not only is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life and you have to focus on that, but I put I've given you now and it's on there the Lamb's Book of Life and it's got Randy's name on it. Hang that in your home where you'll see that every morning and every evening before you go to bed as a visual reminder that no matter how much the anxiety comes, your name's still written there because everything else in life will try to get us to look differently. And I know for the people that have done that, even years later, I've gotten phone calls, and they'll say, it's still working. And I'll go, what's still working? I don't remember the, <laughs> the counseling, but they'll say, that plaque, you know. And as I told Bill, my favorite plaque that I have hanging at my house is, Tom, before Jesus called you into the ministry and equipped you to do all this good, he factored in all your stupidity. So I feel very good about that, knowing the Lord already
3: has taken care of me despite who I am. Yeah, not not to uh, diminish anyone's suffering, uh, because suffering is real, right? And, and suffering could really, really be uh, detrimental, of course, in anyone's life. But but I love these words of Paul in Romans chapter eight verse eighteen, where he says, "For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us." The the promises of God or greater than anything. And, and sometimes it's unfathomable. How could it be better than, you know, these great atrocities that could occur to individuals? But but yet it is. And we trust the Word of God because you cannot lie.
0: I like that. Tom, I like the fact you started your last comment with true statement. So I'd like to say something and start with false statement. I was valedictorian of my senior class. Were you really? Well, That's a false statement. Okay. <laughs> Boy, you didn't. You didn't listen, Tom. I, I didn't Well, Bill, I always want to give you the benefit oh, of the doubt. Thank you. I appreciate that. No, I, I was not. I did not sign up for that job. All right. Here's a question. What does the statement "Faith without works are dead" mean? What does that mean? Faith
3: without works are dead. Yeah. So, so this is in, uh, of course, the Epistle of James. Uh, in the in the context, uh, James gives the example of he says uh, a body. Uh, without a soul is dead it, because uh, you know a, a body without a soul does nothing it, and really it's a, it, the context is saying that uh, that if faith does nothing it's it's kind of not really contributing it's not showing it's actually it uh, I would I would argue it's not a statement about salvation which sometimes it's misconstrued but more so it's showing that well if you have faith and yet there's no works that come out of it then what is the benefit for everyone else? And uh, and I think that that's more so the context.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And and uh, I, it's, it's pretty clear to me that James is not using works the same way Paul does, talking about works of the law. If you look in the context of James there, he's talking about taking care of orphans and widows. Uh, he's talking about those who uh, are lacking clothing and food and ministering to them. So we talked about fruit earlier. Uh, uh, virtuous behavior, this is what uh, should be the result, you know, the uh, the parable of the different kinds of soil. Uh, the soil that is the good soil is the soil that bears fruit or bears a, a, a bountiful harvest. Uh, and so in the same way, our faith, if it's real, it's going to bear fruit. Uh, again, John the Baptist, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There should be uh, evidence of our salvation. Uh, and, and I think it's important that we do these uh, periodic times of self-assessment
0: and, and consider uh, the fruit that we're bearing. So good. So good. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. 2484 That's the number. I've got a great question that's just come in, and I'm going to get to it. I do not want to uh, squeeze the time on this one because it looks like it's going to be a wonderful question. So I'm going to start with the question at the top of the next hour. But if you are brand new to Faith Radio, I would want to encourage you to get our welcome pack. It's really quite nice. And all you have to do to sign up for that is to request a free welcome pack. And you can do that. uh, You can text the word WELCOME to 877-933-2484. Or you can head over to myfaithradio.com. All kinds of options. You'll be Happy you picked it up, and if you have not signed up for the Faith Radio app, I mean, you, know, you don't really you don't sign up for an app. Do you? you just get it, right, on the phone? You guys, you want yep. to be helpful here? Yeah, download an app. <laughs> yeah, download an app. Yep. You don't sign up for it. Yeah, so download the app, and it's a beautiful app, and it takes you uh, to all the programs, and it helps you listen to the show live, and it gets you keeps you in touch with everything going on here at Faith Radio. So, again, Guide Talk, my power panel is Dr. Randy Nelson who is a professor of New Testament studies here at the University of Northwestern, Trevor Rubenstein, who is with Chosen People Ministries. He is the Minnesota Branch Director and Pastor Tom Parrish. So we're going to take a short break and be right back with Hour 2.